0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard. I am the director of ECFR and this is another episode in our important series looking back at 1989 and thinking about what it means for the future of the world. So far, we've talked to Timothy Garden ash about the events as they unfolded, to Fyodor Lukyanov about Russia. We're going to China. We've looked at the first generation of beneficiaries. But in many ways, the elephant in the 1989 room is the United States of America, which is the country that won the Cold War, the one that proclaimed the end of history in 1989. And I think it's really important that we look at America's 1989, as well as all of these other 1989s. And to help me make sense of America's 1989, I'm very pleased to be joined back on the podcast by Jeremy Shapiro, who's Research Director here at UCFR, and who was in America in 1989, weren't you, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, that's my major claim to fame.
0: So tell me a bit more about your 1989. What were you doing on the 9th of November, 1989?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think maybe my 1989 experience is actually reasonably typical for an American, which is that I don't have one. I can't tell you where I was on November 9th when the Berlin Wall fell. I was living in San Francisco And I was a computer programmer, and I was coding, you know, 10 hours a day. And I was only sort of vaguely aware of the world around me. Um, And I was vaguely aware that there were these events going on in Eastern Europe. But it wasn't a subject of conversation that I was having with anybody. Our main topics of conversation were uh, technology and outdoor sports.
0: You were inventing the internet, maybe, because that was also happening in 1989. Was that a big deal? Were you aware of Tim Berners-Lee and the internet?
1: I was very aware, yeah, of the World Wide Web, what he was developing. And, uh, you know, we were the Internet already existed and I was certainly using it on a daily basis. And that was often a subject of conversation. But in California at that moment, the idea of a liberation of Eastern Europe wasn't something that was very present in the culture. So if we look
0: back now at what 1989 meant for America, maybe we should start with that you know it wasn't such a big deal (laughs) maybe for you on the actual day the berlin wall fell but this whole idea of victory in the cold war and lessons that learned from it what do you think the main sort of impact has been on on american grand strategy and on the american psyche
1: i mean obviously particularly in in the long term the, the the effect has been rather profound i think for the U.S. really since 1945, the problem has always been domestic mobilization. I think it's not something that really, you know, came up in any of your other podcasts, but the United States hasn't really felt uh, on a cultural level like it really needed to be part of the sort of politics of the world, generally speaking. There was a There was an American elite, which very much felt that it should be after the Second World War. And the Cold War was uh, the essential element of domestic mobilization, which kept people interested in international politics and kept it on the political agenda and made, made certain that people who were running for president had to have a policy, a foreign policy that was oriented around the Soviet Union. And it was the lens through which Americans saw foreign policy and became interested in foreign policy and i would say to a large degree the story of uh, the post cold war era in the united states has been a search for another paradigm that can accomplish that but it hasn't ever really that hasn't ever really come together you know there was uh, a general expectation after the end of the cold war that there would be a sort of demobilization that there would be a peace dividend to a degree there was but the United States never really got uninvolved from the world in the way that its population seems to have expected um, and so it's i think it's it's a sort of constant search for uh, f- amongst the foreign policy elite and even amongst some of the politicians to create a justification that can measure up to the cold war we 've seen a series of those in since the end of the Cold War, there was first the sort of the idea of Balk- the Balkans and, and the idea of humanitarian intervention. And then, of course, post 9-11, there was this idea of the war on terror. And now we're seeing a sort of, uh, and frankly, all of these looked a little bit like Cold War redux in the way that they were focused on domestic mobilization. And now the the new paradigm is China, which I, think, I suppose has the better chance Relative to the others of reinvolving the United States in the world. But I do think that the, after the Cold War, it has been a continual struggle. And that's really the kind of defining feature of the domestic politics of foreign policy in the United States since then.
0: So it's more a question of absence rather than a source of joy and liberation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would say broadly speaking on a political level, look, I mean, obviously, and I think you heard it from Timothy Nash in the previous part of your series, there, there, was, a, there was an element of, of celebration, particularly among the, the sort of foreign policy circles that I now run in. It was definitely seen as a victory, a victory for the American way of life, a victory over the Soviet foe, and a validation of the, of the American model. And you know, the problem that they always had was that, to the extent that that was communicated to the public, it undermined the very rationale to continue to have the sort of military industrial complex that had grown up during the Cold War. And you know, if there's any sort of single bureaucratic fact is that, you know, if you do something, Uh, like that, you create a sort of large military machine, a large intellectual machine to support it, a large industrial machine to support it, Uh, interests will grow up that will support its continuation. And uh, I think coming out of the Cold War, those interests really strongly existed. I mean, Eisenhower had warned about them in 1960. Uh, he'd but he'd warned about a military-industrial complex. It was clearly more than that by 1989. It was a sort of military-industrial-intellectual complex in which a lot of people were very invested in a certain American role in the world, uh, and that they couldn't precisely define what the Cold War is victory. Or to the extent that they did, and they definitely did. I, I think what uh, I guess what I'm getting at is that when they defined it as a victory, they undermined. The rationale for maintaining uh, US involvement in the world at the similar at a similar level that they had during the Cold War. And so the leitmotif was less the victory. It was a fairly short victory celebration. You know, people advocated having a parade. There never was one. President Bush never really gave a speech saying we had won the Cold War. Rather, it was a it was a continual search for a new problem to justify the military, industrial, intellectual complex. Uh, role in the world. As you said,
0: there was a series of different paradigms. First, George W. Bush's New World Order, which was actually interesting because that meant somehow trying to share the leadership of the world with other great powers. But then that sort of morphed quite quickly into the unipolar moment and an idea of democratic enlargement. No two democracies have ever gone to war with each other, we were told. So Clinton's paradigm was very much about about spreading democracy and enlarging it. And that was taken up by Bush, but fused together with a global war on terror. How much of a lot of people looking back at that period think that it was a time of of American overreach uh, and that the triumphalism of the end of history and the fact that there was no longer a kind of ideological enemy led the U.S. to make a series of uh, mistakes, which have created a lot of the insecurity and instability that we have at the moment. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, I,
1: I can subscribe to that mostly. I mean, there clearly was overreach. Um, there clearly was, uh, you know, frankly, and uh, <laughs> it, the United States really was incredibly powerful relative to other people in this in this period. It was quite an unusual period, and so it would be quite normal. To uh, to overreach under those circumstances, um, because of course it was always going to be fleeting. It was a sort of it was a sort of uh, you know it was described as the unipolar moment. But I guess I feel and consistent with what the what I was just saying that that the problem was less triumphalism than a need to create issues and problems that it could engage the United States and its population and its power in the world. And yeah, that involved some triumphalism, but actually that also involved building up problems bigger than they were to justify the sort of enormous level of military spending that, that such a powerful country with no threats would, was nonetheless maintaining. And so, there, I, you know, I think you can, see sort of, you can see sort of both elements, and interestingly, they support each other. But to me, the more important element is the, uh, the need to find problems.
0: That's very, that's absolutely fascinating, because some people think that, you know, a lot of the problems, I mean, they, you know, they, they're, it may be interesting to think about the different types of relationships, because there's a sort of relationship with Russia. When I spoke to Fyodor Lukyanov. you know, he has a, an account of the West, basically humiliating and, and overreaching in terms of how we manage the Russia relationship and that a lot of the problems that we have today. Have their roots in in the immediate period after 1989 when instead of engaging Russia in a kind of co-construction of a of a new European security order, we basically assumed that we would uh, enlarge the western led order <laughs> and that was a difficult thing for the for the Russians to kind of swallow and to, to adapt to. There is also obviously a Chinese story. Clinton used to talk about how uh, the US needed to find uh, ways of developing a multilateral system in in his bridge to the twenty-first century, which 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 was rule-based and which China could be part of because we'd want that. uh, Americans would want that when China's economy was was bigger than America's economy. I mean, maybe we should look at those two big relationships because those are the sort of two most consequential superpower relationships um, since nineteen eighty-nine.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, I would agree with uh, with Fyodor mostly on the on the way that uh, on the sort of result of the U.S. Russia relationship, and it was very clear. You know, I was working with some of the Clinton administration officials at at Rand in this period in the nineteen nineties when, during NATO expansion, and their view of Russia was really, uh, you know, as as completely passed, not, not, not something that ever needed to really be considered, not not something that needed to be worried about for the future. And so I think that e- even though Fyodor is right that it, it sort of unrolled in that way, I think that it was more a result of, it wasn't the result of any sort of conscious plan exactly, it was more the result of the sort of hubris of power and the worship of the sort of trends, the idea that this was this was the way that things were inevitably going. I don't think that there was a sort of conscious effort to humiliate Russia or a constant effort to um, you know to sort of create a sort of American imperium over it in the way that the Russians sometimes see it. But the effect is more or less the same. Uh, they they really they really weren't very interested in what the Russian opinion was on almost anything. And, uh, that ended up having an incredibly humiliating effect. And I think as, as Fyodor said in, when you were talking to him, that there became in the early 2000s an effort by Putin to just get them noticed. You know, to, he was sort of socially sort of standing up. And I think the way Fyodor put it was saying, you know, there will be consequences to your actions. And, you know, that message has finally come through. But I could, but I would say that, you know, uh, even through the Georgia War, that message had not really registered with the United States. Now, now it certainly has.
0: With the benefit of hindsight, do you think? What do you think America could have, should have done differently?
1: Uh, yeah, I don't even think I need the benefit of hindsight. Uh, frankly, people were writing about this at the time. George Kennan was writing about it at the time. Thomas Friedman, who's you know pretty much wrong about everything, was writing about this at the time. That. You know, that we needed a settlement for the Cold War that more resembled the settlement to World War II rather than the settlement to World War I. And what we meant by that is that uh, the resurrection of Germany b- between the wars demonstrated to the statesmen that were devising the post World War II settlement that they had to find a way to incorporate a Germany that could be in a way that would, that Germans would accept. And they had to incorporate that into the system in a way that was not punitive. I thought you were about to call for a new
0: Yalta and that uh, we'd get lots of uh, lots of emails coming in on the podcast, but it's a relief that that
1: was... No, I wasn't quite going with the Yalta. I was referring more to the um, to the way in which... Uh, yeah, we can talk about that in the next podcast. But the uh, I think in terms of yeah, in terms of Germany, you can see that there is, after World War II, it's a big contrast to the World War I settlement. There is a, a genuine effort to create a space for Germany and to create, an, uh, and to, and, ha- and to have that space be something that they, as a nation, can accept. Obviously, they themselves changed dramatically in the process, so they were willing to accept different things. But that was the aim of the settlement quite explicitly. Uh, and, they, you know, I th- there were people who said uh, George Kennan, I think, is the most prominent example, who said, in the wake of the Cold War, look, you know, the Russians had a really bad decade, but you know, it's Russia; it'll be back. It, it doesn't go away for better or for worse, you know, mostly for worse. And so, you know, we better create a, a settlement which, when they are weak, when they are weak, they will see as magnanimous, uh, and they will see as according them the kind of special status that their history, their size, their power will ultimately they will cause them to demand. And we didn't do that. We quite the contrary. We, you said that George Bush had this sort of multilateral or multipolar idea early on. I think that that lasted like a week or two. Um, Really, quite quickly, they moved into the idea that Russia wasn't important and that they could, you know, make it a big Poland and just incorporate it into the system on the same terms that every other country was being incorporated into NATO and the EU and the global order. And that I just think, in the long term, that was never going to work.
0: So what would it have looked like this different settlement?
1: Well, Gorbachev was asking for it. Yeah, yeah, he was asking for it. I mean, you know, the thing about this is that it would have required compromises. It would have required giving Russia things that it couldn't demand and it couldn't get on its own. And it would have required doing that from a position of power. And that's not something politically that countries are very good at. That's why the World War II settlement is the rarer one. And that most, most post-war settlements look like World War One, And that's why a lot of these settlements don't don't actually end conflicts. And I think you know, we have learned that historical lesson, but I can understand looking at the at the Bush and Clinton administrations and at their European allies, why they were, it was very difficult for them to, in, uh, to be that magnanimous and to be able to convince their publics that they needed to make essentially concessions to Russia when it was powerless at the moment. But I think historically we can say it would have been wiser. But a lot of the concessions
0: which the Russians would have asked for were would, would not really about russia it was more about the sovereignty of other peoples and and you know is that what you're suggesting that it was a mistake to let the baltic states join nato and to to enlarge nato so quickly
1: or did you have other kinds of concessions in mind yeah i'm not sure exactly how that all would have unrolled but i think what it what it meant was, according to Russia, a special place in the European and global security order commensurate with its capacity to eventually do harm. And that means that you would have to have a sort of genuine agreement for them, from them about what this sort of common European security space would have looked like. And that may well have meant that, uh, that you wouldn't have had the kind of NATO expansion that we did. You certainly wouldn't have had the kind of NATO expansion that we did have. You might have had, you, you might have, under some circumstances, been able to create some sort of alternative arrangement or even some sort of NATO arrangement for these countries that, that Russia would have found more acceptable, that would have achieved some of the same stabilization and security benefits. But it's, you know, it's hard to play that counterfactual out i think the important element that you need to miss that that we missed is that we never came up with a a european security order that the russians really accepted they were always unhappy about it and they were always felt as if it was an imposition as fyodor said even though occasionally they would they just couldn't really do anything about it Um, and that is the essential flaw
0: if you were talking to someone from Poland or Estonia or, you know, one of the beneficiaries of NATO enlargement, I suppose they would say that the Russians were never going to be happy anyway. And it's better to have kind of problems about the status of, of uh, Georgia and Ukraine than it is to be arguing about Poland and and, uh, and Estonia and Latvia, both for the countries concerned and also for for, for the European Union, because we have uh, greater security the, the further out we push these barriers. Well, I mean, in the first instance, I,
1: I wouldn't accept the premise. Uh, it's a counterfactual, so we can't know, but uh, that the Russians were always going to be a problem. What we do know is that is that this is something that Gorbachev was asking for. This was something that Yeltsin was asking for. This was something that early, Putin in his early days was asking for. And uh, they never got it. So we don't really know how they would have operated. I think, s- secondly, you know, if I was Polish, I'm sure I would, agree, I would agree with that. Fyodor was very interesting
0: because he was making a big distinction between Gorbachev and, and Yeltsin because Gorbachev was basically talking about the Soviet Union, which obviously included all of these other publics, whereas by the time Yeltsin was there, it was a it was. Uh, you know, they were, a lot of these states had become independent and were kind of sovereign bodies, so it was a completely different
1: setup. I mean, I think there were very important differences so that's the, 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 between the Soviet Union and between Russia, for sure. But I think a similarity that runs across them and into into the early Putin period is that they were demanding a special role for Russia or the Soviet Union as not just an ordinary sovereign country in the European security order and that role was never accorded uh, so in that sense there is some continuity even though of course there' are very important differences I think the other point to make is you know if you're sort of if you're sort of arguing with the canonical poll and the poll is saying well look I feel a lot safer having NATO membership you know I, I think I can understand that I'm sure I would feel the same way and they probably are but I think two other categories of people are a lot worse off first of all the countries that are not in NATO in the EU right now are a lot worse off and and they are really paying the price the 13,000 Ukrainians that have died in this war in the in the war in eastern Ukraine the the instability and the lack of economic integration and prosperity that is Rife in that region, I think, can be traced to these problems, and so that is a price that they have paid in order that Poland can feel that degree of safety. The second thing is that you know we've created this renewed east-west, Russia-West conflict, which seems to be the way that we're going, and that has a massive cost. Uh, Poland is paying a a small part of that cost, but everybody is going to pay a cost to that, and. You know, I think that a a lot of people feel quite comfortable with running a new Cold War, I guess because we won the last one. I I guess I'm not. You know, the the last Cold War cost several trillions of dollars. It killed hundreds of thousands or even millions of people. And it forced an entire generation of people in both Russia and the West to live under the threat of constant nuclear annihilation. And so... (laughs) I don't want to go through that again. And I think that's a massive cost. And, you know, it's great that Poland feels safer and that Poland used the EU and it used NATO for the purposes of stabilizing itself and becoming more secure. You know, that is definitely an important benefit of what we did, but there are some costs as well.
0: That's a perfect bridge to the China question, because actually most people would say that if there is a new Cold War, it's not really with Russia, it's with China now. How much... Does that Cold War that we seem to be building at the moment, a lot of people say that we're in kind of 1947, or the equivalent, has its roots in 1989?
1: Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't think that much. You know, 1989, of course, was a super important year in in China. And uh, that was something that, you know, actually made a greater impression in the United States than, or at least in my circles in the United States, than in uh, then the fall of the berlin wall which was the which was the tiananmen massacre and that did sort of drive a wedge between the us and china obviously but i would say that you know even as early as that period but mostly a little bit later there was a sense that china was on the rise and and this was something that dated from you know from uh, deng xiaoping's reforms 10 years before 1989 but that the plan for that from a U.S. perspective in the 90s and the 2000s was this idea that China would inevitably, by by getting richer, would uh, democratize and integrate this sort of stakeholder theory. And yeah, the responsible stakeholder theory, which was that as China got richer, as China got more involved in the international system, it would become more responsible. It would inevitably uh, democratize. And I guess... You can attach this a bit to the spirit of 1989, if you will, the sort of sense that because that the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe were represented sort of advanced stages of where China was eventually going and that the contradictions of authoritarianism and capitalism would eventually, the contradictions are between authoritarianism and capitalism would eventually show in China. I think that I don't. I don't know if that's a result of 1989 or not. Possibly, I I feel like that that idea was already there, but and it certainly lasted until you know fairly recently. I think that that idea sort of started to fade away with the financial crisis ten years ago, and it's fully gone now. and And I think that that has revolutionized the U.S. approach to China because now there is no sort of shadow of the future where you can believe that as, as China is enriching and China is growing stronger, it's it's even it would be growing less dangerous. Now the idea is that as China gets stronger and richer, it's going to be more dangerous. And I don't think that the United States has found a sort of way of uh, approaching that, except, again, through a sort of Cold War mobilization lens.
0: But there are two ways of theorizing the last 30 years vis-à-vis China. One way is this sort of idea that Clinton had an insight that from a position of strength you should find a way of integrating China so that it become a, a kind of responsible stakeholder. And some people say that we didn't do that enough. We were too half-hearted. We didn't really give them enough of a stake in the existing order, and that's why they're trying to overthrow it. The kind of mirror image of that, I suppose, is the the position which a lot of neoconservatives adopted at the end of the Cold War, the project for a new American century, where they were saying that we should massively ramp up our... Sorry, we. I'm saying we in a, in a very... <laughs> Strange way because I'm not sure I have a claim to be part of this we but, but the United
1: <laughs> we'll take we'll take you mark we'll take you
0: That's very kind I, I thought myself
1: you <laughs> will always be part of my we. <laughs>
0: But the, the U.S. should massively ramp up its spending in order to maintain its uh, its primacy uh, in Asia and build its, well, on a global stage, but also build its relationships with, with other Asian countries so that it could maintain uh, the American century for, for much longer. And that actually the last 30 years have been slightly wasted from that perspective. But they both uh, stories are ones which have a kind of 1989 route. I suppose your third version is that people have been waiting for a Chinese enemy for 30 years in order to make, manage to get back to the glorious days of, the, of Cold War mobilization. So, th-
1: Yeah, look, I don't, I don't have a strong view on, on which of those. I mean, it's clear that both of those paradigms and, and mine informed US policy over the last 30 years toward, toward China. I and mean, they never really plumped for either one at any, uh, totally at any one moment, even though I would think that there was this responsible stakeholder idea did, did have some, you know, push behind it, uh, in the, in the nineties and even into the two thousands. But, you know, throughout people were always worried about that. And the US was always, you know, constantly pivoting toward Asia, at least in its own mind, throughout this period with an awareness of the increase of the potential increase in Chinese power and was quite attentive to its Asian alliances, I think, you know, one of the things that we're starting to understand is that, you know, China's development has certainly owed a lot to its ability to access the international economy, but, you know, fundamentally its domestic economic and political development has been an internal affair, you know, beyond that access to markets. And that means that the question of whether we were sufficiently, generous, I guess, if that's the right word, in allowing them to be a responsible stakeholder is probably an irrelevant one. They they have had a pretty strong sense of where they wanted their country to go since Deng Xiaoping. And they've been marching along that path. And it does seem in retrospect that the offers that we had out to them were never really something that they... Considered, And so, you know, again, that's a sort of easy that at least in terms of intellectually, that's an easy response for the US to make to that is, is that they can sort of welcome that enemy, they can welcome the possibilities of domestic mobilization. I think, you know, that's probably where things are going. But at the moment, I wouldn't say it's a done deal, because the Chinese have been, you know, not the greatest of enemies so far, they haven't been sufficiently cartoonish enough in the way that the Russians are to really motivate the American public. And so if you look at if you if you sort of look at the American domestic political debate, you see that China is very much seen as an economic threat. But geopolitically the threat that threat exists mostly in, in the Pentagon and in the national security community. Whereas Russia, consistent with it, you know, in the last couple of years, since the twenty sixteen election particularly, um has, you know, once again transformed itself into this sort of cartoonish level villain that the American public can sort of understand if it's become very polarized. And so that's why I think that despite the fact that the national security community in the United States wants to fight a Cold War with China, they may end up having to at least pretend to be fighting a Cold War with Russia and end up, you know, perhaps in the worst of all possible worlds, pushing the two of them together and fighting a Cold War with both of them.
0: Well, we'll see how uh, that all develops. We're going to do a podcast on the, on China's 1989 as well. And it's certainly interesting to see how this mobilization process that you're talking about has started to take place across lots of different American communities. Obviously, it's most powerful in the national security community, but the human rights community is very focused on the plight of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, the uh, religious free, the religious right is worried about what's happening to Christians. The labor unions, obviously, already quite mobilized about the about China's economic threat, and now it's becoming a tech war as well, which is going into into every campus in the country where Chinese researchers are, are being seen as as. Uh,
1: yeah, no, that's all true, and I think that I think that that's, those are sort of important, let's say, precursors of domestic mobilization, and so it could it. Could definitely work. I would say still, if you if you look at the US presidential debates right now, you're not really hearing China discussed in these terms. They're discussed as an economic threat. And so to me, I'm sort of waiting to see those things penetrate into the political sphere, but they but they may in the fairly near future. You're right.
0: Okay, so that brings, I think, an end to this fascinating conversation about America's 1989. We have one thing left to do on the podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Jeremy, what books should people read to understand America's 1989?
1: Yeah, I, I think I'd recommend um, a book which is very appropriately titled 1989, uh, The Struggle to Create Post-Cold War Europe by uh, Mary Serati. This is a book which really covers a lot of the the sort of american statecraft associated particularly with the reunification of germany but also with the fall of the soviet union and really you know sort of uncovers a lot of the of the transition from that w- that we were talking about from an idea that we could create a sort of new global order in which you know russia could be part and everybody else into a a sort of American unipolar moment because of the enormous power that it had.
0: Fantastic. Well, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let everyone that you know know about it through uh, writing them out on your social media page or ours and above all, heading to the platform that you use to download this podcast and giving us a review and a great rating because that will help let other people know about the podcast. We'll put links up to the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Jeremy Shapiro and myself, Mark Leonard, in a very police-occupied London, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbosch, and our editor is Alice Whelan.